Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist, will join us as soon as she can. I talked with her a few minutes ago, and she is running just a tiny bit late, but I'm hoping she'll be on. Before I finish with all of our normal announcements at the beginning of the show, first of all, let here she is right on cue. Hey, are you there? I'm here. Yay, you made it. I was home. I couldn't dial the number. I was trying to use the house phone. It wasn't working well. But I'm in, so I'm here. Yay. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad you could make it. I was just about to do our normal kind of announcement things at the beginning, like we do at the beginning of every show. Um, I will be back in Chicago Thursday, November 29th, and Friday, November 30th for... Uh, my conference for speech pathologists and other early interventionists. I think they do call them developmental therapists in Illinois, Kate, another state that kind of calls it like it is. Wait, what do they call them? Uh, developmental therapist. Oh, okay. Don't you like being called that over developmental interventionist? I kind of do, just because I think parents, it makes a little more sense to them. Well, and I think it puts it on the same par as physical therapist, occupational therapist speech therapist, developmental therapist, although some speech pathologists don't like being called speech therapist. Um, I don't mind. I think it's just a label. I don't really care about that. But I think it does, it makes more sense to parents when everybody is known as my child's therapist. And then you have your specialty area. Right. Of course, a lot of times people, my parents call me speech therapist and I Really tell them about five times, and then I quit telling them. I'm like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I know. When people call me Dr. Laura, yeah. Dr. Laura Miles, I'm like, you know, and I correct it a lot, and then finally I just think, okay, whatever. Whatever. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. I'm not in the title anyway, so just whatever you want to call me. I know. All right. Well, I just wanted to announce that about Chicago. Those spots are filling up, so if you are planning on coming those days, you better go ahead and register, and you can get registration information at teachmetotalk.com. And Chicago, the the very first post is what you'll want to click, and you can register there. Or if you got a mailer and want to do that by phone, you know, please give us a buzz here at the office. Or if you need further help, you can always email me at laura at teachmetotalk.com. And I have had some questions about purchase orders and group discounts, and we do all that stuff. But there are rules for those things and guidelines, so email me if you need further information, and I will be more than happy to help you with that. That was announcement number one. Announcement number two, and I don't think I've talked about this on the show, I am going to ASHA, the American Speech and Hearing Association Annual Conference, next week in Atlanta for the very first time ever in my career. And I'm really, really, really excited about that. Johnny has said, this is the year we're going. No more excuses. You need to go. So I'm very excited about going to that, and it'll be fun for me to get to meet people from all over the country. So if you are going and if you are a podcast listener, please look for me, and Johnny will be with me too. And everybody that's been on the website knows what we look like since my face is all over there. So be sure to uh, 
track us down and and talk to us there. I'd I'd love to meet a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners if they're going to be there, especially our friends from Georgia. I just did a conference in Atlanta in September, and it, some people did say they were going there. So um, some people from there said they were going. So that'll be a lot of fun. So I hope I get to meet some or re-meet or re reconnect with some people that I've met over the past couple of years doing my own conference and I think it's going to be a lot of fun and so then the week after that well we'll just have to do the whole show about Asha and all the cool stuff I learned there who are the big names going are there there must be somebody lots oh my gosh Mm -hmm. lots and lots and lots um I am going short courses Asha's really interesting because the conferences you can pay you you pay the conference fee, and then you pay an additional fee if you want to hear someone do a short course, which is generally a three-hour course. And then they have hundreds of other one-hour things going on. They call them poster sessions, but really it could just be a person talking about, you know, whatever brand of therapy they do or their, sometimes it's research-based or whatever, a product. Those are going on all the time. So even when you're not in those short courses, there's still tons of, uh, lots of presentations going on. And again, it's my first time. I'm just talking about all this from my knowledge, from hearing other people and reading about it. I've never been, so it'll it'll be a lot of fun. And I am going to hear um, doing a short course on apraxia, and that's exciting. Some big names are teaching that. And then... Um, Doing another one on the CERTS model for treating autism. That'll be exciting. I read a lot of uh, Dr. Prasant. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Read a lot of his work, so that'll be exciting to see him in person. And again, there's. I know I'm forgetting other fabulous people that I should be saying that I'm registered for, but um, I'm sure I'll have great information to share. And it is always nice to go. Here's somebody talk that you've you've read their work and you use their work. You refer other people to their things, so it'll be it'll be exciting to uh, put a name with a face with that and and hear them talk directly. So just wanted to share that, and we'll talk about it next Monday since that's next Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So we'll have one more show between now and then. Sounds good. That'll be fine, I know. All right, anything else before we get rolling with today's topic? Not that I can think of. Just a a real heads up to people thinking about the Chicago thing because they really do book up. I know we always say this, but they really always do. So if you're a procrastinator like us, book it. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I always feel bad when somebody calls me the morning of saying, can I still come? Uh, that would be no. Yeah. Yeah. Usually I just leave a message saying it's full. Yeah, our events really do sell out, and that's so exciting. But, again, if, you, if you're if you like Kate and me, you're, you, you need to not do that. You need to fight your normal tendency to procrastinate and register early. Go ahead and get that in. Okay, today we are talking about uh, continuing with our series on building expressive language in late talking toddlers, and we've walked through this whole process for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks now, and we're to the point of talking about teaching a child to 
appropriately respond to questions. Last week and the week before, we talked about the first kinds of questions that children respond to, which would be answering a very simple question like, what's that? Which is usually the first kind of question that a child learns how to answer. Secondly, a child will learn how to appropriately respond yes and no. And last week, we talked about how difficult that is for so many of our little friends with language delays, particularly those children who also have receptive language delays or comprehension issues, so they're not really understanding what you're asking, which is the reason that they're having so much difficulty learning to respond with an accurate yes or no. And we gave you some good tricks for working on that last week, so if you didn't get a chance to listen to that yet, go back and listen to that show first before we talk about today. Last week, we also talked about learning to answer where questions, and I walked through that hierarchy of how a child learns to answer those questions. It's not just immediate. You know, first they'll respond to a where question just as a way to alert their attention and participate with you in conversation, and they are usually at that point far, far away from being able to answer the question, but they, they learn to anticipate or to direct their attention to you more uh, clearly when you're asking a question like, where'd it go? Where is it? Where's Tomo? Where's the dog? Where's Daddy? So, again, it's just a way that an adult would use to redirect a child's attention. Next, we talked about that they would respond non-verbally. Then they might respond with a generic answer like here or there to um, a question like where's whatever and then they'll start really asking the question before they're truly ready to respond to and, and answer verbally, you know, where daddy go or where are your shoes. And so, again, there's a logical progression and a sequence that a child must go through before you would get that verbal answer. So if you have a child who's really still only using a handful of words and not using any phrases, working on asking him where's whatever and expecting him to respond with in my room or outside or, um, you know, under the bed. It's, it's just an inappropriate goal because the child would need to follow that logical sequence of understanding a where question and then responding non-verbally correctly long before he would be able to give you an answer. And the, the kinds of questions that we're talking about today are related to this in that you will have a child who's going to move from answering the question non-verbally or giving you some indication or with a gesture or, again, some way to let you know that he understands the question long before you expect him to pop out that verbal answer. And I think what happens is a lot of times the child might be using, say, 20 words, 30 words, even up to 50 words, and a mom or dad will think, oh, he's talking well enough now, I'm just going to, he should really be able to answer all these questions that I ask him, when really the child does not have a large enough vocabulary to be able to pull enough words from to form a good answer, or a lot of times what we're asking, we've never, ever, ever heard the child use that word in another context, meaning that he's naming something or he's in some way responding or commenting with the word that he would use to answer the question. So it makes absolutely no sense that you would ask a child a question 
when the answer is a word that he or she has never, ever said before, when you've never, ever heard it before. And don't you think people just make that mistake all the time? Yes, I do. I get it, but it doesn't doesn't usually work. Yeah. (laughs) And so we want to be sure, and especially if you're a parent listening and you're thinking, okay, I have listened for weeks and weeks until she finally gets to this topic. You know, I wrote her back in the summer and asked her, how would you, my child doesn't answer questions, how would you teach him to answer questions? And she's going to tell me, Unless he has a big enough vocabulary, don't expect him to answer it. You know, what a letdown. And I think, (laughs) well, it's the truth. (laughs) And, again, a lot of times we'll we'll take a child who's minimally verbal and think that he or she is ready to answer a question like this just because, you know, he has ten words. And most of the time, not true, not going to happen. So that's why we've done this whole series of shows to walk, through the whole process of developing a child's vocabulary. So, again, if you were back several weeks ago with us and your child doesn't still doesn't have a lot of action words or still doesn't have a lot of prepositions or those location words, still doesn't really isn't using any descriptive words, that's where you need to be focused, teaching those specific words in context while you play, while you go about your daily routines, and then Answering questions will come later when he or she is already using those words and, again, using them in a different context not to answer a question. And I know I've said that every week now for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, Kate, I know you're sick to death of hearing me talk about this. (laughs) But language really does progress this way. And unless you lay the foundation, it doesn't develop. And so a lot of times, too, I think that even we as therapists, we're working at a level that's too high for a child. We, we're too complex. We might be working on answering WH questions with with a kid who really isn't doing enough back and forth turn taking in in conversations without the barrage of WH questions. So again, want to clarify that. On the other hand, let's just go ahead and address what I was talking to you about before the show. What about where you hear experts that say you would never work on, and again, I use the term expert loosely there, where you would never work on answering a WH question. You would never really work on these things per se because they'll just develop, and I don't really think that's true either when a child is ready, developmentally ready for this, meaning that it's using a lot, has a couple hundred words at least, is is using those words in phrases. It's pretty easy to get them to imitate. They're very connected to you. They understand multiple step commands. You know, they can follow a, at least a two-step related command. This is the point where you would think about um, having a child formally work on responding to questions. And it is on our developmental test. It is something that we measure when we give a child a speech-language assessment or a developmental assessment. Does he understand and answer questions? So to say that we would never work on it is just as wrong as working on it too soon, in my opinion. So I wanted to throw that out there, too, because I know there's a whole school of thought with the our whole onslaught of child-led therapies that we would never really ask a ton of questions because it shuts kids down. And, yes, that information is true, 
when you're talking about children who are in earlier developmental phases, but when they are really ready to work on this, and again, I'm talking about children who have several hundred words, who are talking all the time, who are using phrases consistently, and who are ready, then we certainly would work on that and and target that formally in therapy. Or if you're a mom or a dad and listening, this is the point where where you would target that and it, it would be an appropriate goal if you're looking at kind of that, working on that next little step in language development. So I wanted to make sure that we kind of talk about that too because I, I don't want to mislead anyone in that you would never work on it, but you have to wait until a child is ready so that he or she is going to be able to respond. It is frustrating when, when I see an adult asking a child, you know, questions over and over and over that he or she are, you know, is not equipped to respond to. You know, what would you do at school today? Who would you play with? What would you have for lunch? Who would you sit by at circle time? You know, all of those, you know, five or six questions, boom, 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 without regard for that the child may not have enough vocabulary to answer all that. And, and then, boy, we're not even talking about the memory skills involved. <laughs> For a child to be able to remember all that and recall it, um, that you, you'll see that happen a lot. Do you see parents talk to their kids like that, Kate, when you're there for a visit? A lot. And it is kind of, I feel the child's, well, if they're even with it enough to feel frustration, and sometimes they are. They just, you know, you kind of get that deer-in-the-headlight look, and they're kind of looking like, what in the world does she expect me to say? You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, I know, and I just want to say, oh, let's stick with what he knows. Let's stick with easy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the point that a lot of experts who are saying, you know, don't work on this. I think they're they really mean what they should say don't work on it until a child is ready. And so we've right. already talked about the prerequisites, What I when I think a kid is ready to work on this. So, again, if you're a therapist listening or you're a parent listening and you're thinking about your specific child and, and he or she is not using phrases all the time and not really talkative with you and not, you know, coming up with things on their own to say and, again, a vocabulary well in excess of a couple hundred words, you know, then this is an inappropriate goal and you're going to wait until he or she is ready. And it's just like with everything else. When you wait until a kid is ready, then it's not quite so hard and quite so painful than when you work on it way too early. It's like with potty training. Parents who work on potty training for a year with a kid, you want to say, What about if we wait until we see some of those readiness signs that we're supposed to be looking for, or what you know, uh, or even something like with an older child, like you know, being able to ride a two-wheel bike or tie your shoes. If you wait until a child is developmentally ready, it's really not as hard as if when you work on it well before they're capable of being able to achieve the skill. But same thing with answering questions. I hope that makes sense. I feel like I'm all over the place talking about one extreme or the other, but I think it's important that people consider. um, Well, and I would say, really, Laura, that the most common mistake is working on it too early, whether it be with therapists or with parents, because, you know, that's the kind of stuff particularly parents really want to be able to converse or 
you know, hear from yeah. their kids. What'd you do at school? What'd you have for lunch? Did you play outside? Know. You know, all the little things, and the kids like, uh, you know, nothing. So, <laughs> so I think probably from your perspective and mine, the most important message is revisit what Laura just went through about the prerequisite skills, about what has to be in place before the kid is ready, because the most common mistake is to jump from, oh, he has 30 words, and then launch right into these really kind of vague, abstract, out of the, right. their reality kind of questions, and you don't get a response. Exactly. And until the child, you, until you know a child really has the ability to, to kind of remember and talk about what happened in the past, you almost, I mean, you can work on these kinds of questions before you would have a child really give you evidence of that, but until you really started to see that he or she can make associations, like let's say, for example, you went to the zoo several weeks ago and you there was a moment where you were both really enjoying the monkeys and laughing about the monkeys. And, you know, it was, it was a big moment. It's, not, it's something that both of you really liked and, again, enjoyed and you were sharing that together and, talking about it, and then let's say several weeks later your child sees a commercial on TV or a picture or in something that would remind him of the zoo and something that would trigger that memory. And you can tell, even if all he or she can say is monkey or zoo or whatever, you know that he or she, again, is remembering that and wants to talk about that. And a lot of times, I think, too, waiting until we start to see those kinds of situations come up is also a readiness sign, although let me tell you, you will not see that documented anywhere. But I do think just (laughs) from experience until you see a child ready to kind of uh, again, initiate that on his own or, or want to talk about that, something that happened in the past. I think that almost has to be a part of um, what you're seeing a child do at least some of the time or at least beginning to do before he or she's going to be able to answer questions because then you you have real evidence that he or she remembers and is thinking about it and, again, wants to talk about it. Um, but will you be able to find that written at reference anywhere? No. But I do think it's real life. And we have, a, again, we have a lot of clients who are naturally there cognitively, even before their language skills are there. And I always think about our little friends with apraxia or, say, severe phonological disorders so that they don't have the words to be able to tell you about something, but their receptive language is pretty good. And those kinds of kids, again, are making associations pretty often. Those are the kinds of kids that you'll be playing with a toy with them in their homes and they'll run to their rooms to come back with something that matches what you're doing or something that's related so that you think, gosh, you know, you had an idea. You you remembered that. Or they are digging away in your bag for something that, you know, you're playing with one toy, but all of a sudden you see them kind of, think about or, you know, they'll almost have a little startle like, wait a minute, 
and then they'll start looking for something specifically, and that tells you he remembered that. He's looking for this. And that's always kind of fun for me to see the kid and, and think about, or a kid who comes to see me in my office, and um, I have a little guy that I haven't seen um, lately because his mom just had a new baby, but every week it would be so funny to me when he when he would come in and his mom, I guess she, they would talk about her, she would prep him for the visit, and then if I didn't have the toy out that the, he thought we were going to play with, you could almost see him become a little bit alarmed, like, you know, where is it? And he would look around and, you know, oh, he just so wanted to say, you know, where is that combine we played with? Or where's, you know, and again, he's not no, nowhere near that verbally, but he had an idea and he made an association and he had a memory and needed the words to be able to do that. And I think sometimes with some of our children, when we start to first work on some of these questions, we haven't seen any evidence that they're cognitively that far along yet and could think about a past experience. And so we have to work them up to that if that's not occurring, or, again, kind of wait until we see evidence of that. Have you thought about that before? Do you have any, any good examples that you could share about that? I should have prepped you for that one, but it would be nice to to prep you with it, but I just I thought about that as we're talking about it. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't know that I want to think. I mean, I'm with you on the, yes, that is the apraxic kids because, you know, typically they're, Receptive skills are very good. They have strong ideas and cognitive skills. And um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Well, that's okay. If you think of one later, just chime okay. in. But I, I do think we do have to see some evidence of that, too, that a child is able to remember something that's happened and make those associations before we would expect he or she cognitively to be at the point where they can answer this kind of question. I mean, that just makes sense to me. Right. That well, we and you see that come up in, in play with those right. same kids who, even if they're not very verbal or even verbal at all, but sometimes they'll reenact, you know, like a play scheme or a play script that I've used in the past, and you think, oh, yeah. you remembered it. <laughs> so goofy thing and you know a lot of what I do is routine but then sometimes it can be totally novel and sometimes right. those totally novel just kind of things that happen because the kid did something and then I did something and it came together and they'll re- they'll start up that script and by that I mean they just do what it was that they enjoyed the last time or maybe three right. times before and you certainly see I mean I always say with those kids you can see his wheels turning you know, you can exactly. see they're thinking, oh, I'm going to, I like that. I want to do that again. They're right. fun kids because they're, they're, you know, really with you and sometimes keep you keep you on your toes because they remember and don't want you to forget and pull it out of you one way or another. Exactly. And I love seeing that. And, again, it is an important step. But for some kids with language delays, we might not be seeing that even at two and a half. And so it's not, you may have to introduce some of these things to get, to start to see some evidence of that. And sometimes our little low arousal kids, boy, unless you teach them and really, again, pull it out of them, you're not going to see that initiation piece or that um, evidence, again, without really introducing it 
yourself to see if you can get some of that jump started. Does that make sense when I say that? Yeah. And by low arousal, I mean our little friends that are, again, pretty passive personalities, pretty laid back, don't really have a lot of, um, they don't really fight you on stuff, so they're kind of easy to work with. But you want to see some of that natural initiation or spunk or uh, self-will or whatever you want to call it. You do want to see some of that emerging because, again, I think those are that's important for, for you to know what they're thinking about and what they like and what they remember. But, again, for some of our little friends who have that kind of uh, sensory disposition, you might not see some of this unless you lay the groundwork and... and get some of it going. So today we're talking about the kinds of questions that you might ask, again, um, your child if you have not been with them and want to know what happened or you're just teaching them how to answer questions. And the first strategy that I always use is I call it the forced choice method. And again, we give kids choices all the time. So a lot of times by this level of language development, they're used to really answering, especially in a therapy situation, are we going to play bubbles or balloons? Will we play trucks or Thomas? Do you want to play, you know, whatever versus something else? So they've already gotten to the point where they can imitate and make a choice like that. So carrying this kind of uh, choice over to help cue them in a way to answer a question is just a natural progression of using that strategy. So if you want to ask your child, um, and again, it could be you might be starting with something really similar, you know, what what are we going to, you know, eat or, or whatever. You know, you might have to introduce it in that context before, you know, what, what do you want for lunch today, chicken or peanut butter sandwich? Or um, those kinds of things have to come first before you could ask them, what did you have for lunch today? Or what did you play at school today? So they have to have been able to answer that kind of forced choice question in that more normal way first before you're ever going to answer it kind of in response to something that um, they've already done. Does that make sense to explain it that way, Kate? I think it does. I will say I'm always kind of surprised how many kids that I work with who really don't get, even when it is a forced choice and you have both in front of you and you're saying, <laughs> do you want, you know, Teddy Grahams or Oreos? Do you want choo-choos or trucks? Yeah. They don't really even understand. What what I see most often is they grab them both. You know what I mean? Right. They say, no, yeah. do you want choo-choos or trucks? Yeah. You have to assume they really don't get I'm asking them to choose. Exactly. And when that happens, I'll tell you how I work on it, and then you tell me how you work on it. Because I don't know if we've ever talked about this before. But I'll really, with those kids, you have to give a visual choice. I mean, they have to be able to see it or else they really can't make a distinction. And some kids just seeing it will be enough for them to know that they have to choose. But the kids who don't know and get that instinctively, I really do the whole, I'll hold one of them kind of back, even behind my back maybe or by my side, and one of them like right in front of me, and then do the big switcheroo 
where then I'm putting the other hand, you know, to my side, holding whatever it is, or even behind my back so that that other option is available, so that there's not really, they kind of get, oh, she's going to let me have one. And Mm -hmm. so they're never both available out there where, you know, this is yours for the taking, because that is what happens. They'll grab them both. Right. Um, Without really deciding that. So I think that big moving the hands and the big gesture, it's a good way to do it. And if kids are really all over me and still wanting both, then I try to stand up so that I have a little bit more control over if they can reach it or not. Mm-hmm. And then we're playing with one thing or eating one thing and then go right back into the choice again where you are really using your hands or your body as a way to control um you know, pick just one of these. But for those kids, I mean, really, you know that receptive language is still such a huge issue because they haven't gotten that basic cognitive premise of we're going to do one thing at a time. (laughs) And those kids always nearly look real scattered, don't they? Don't you think? They look like they, oh, they're not quite sure even what they're doing even when they're playing. Right. Um, Or else they have a bunch of brothers and sisters and they've learned, gosh, I've got to fight for what I can can get and get it all. <laughs> there is that angle, but usually yeah. I think it's really more basic. They really don't understand right. you're asking them to make a, make a choice between the two, even though you're showing them right. two things and you're saying, which one, which one do you want? What should we play? Mm, right. You know. Cognitively, they're not there. They haven't, nope. they don't understand that whole choice making, nope. that whole and that's not really on a developmental test per se. I mean, I can't say that I've ever seen that. You know, that's how I love to read tests, you know, and look at yeah. tests and look at. <laughs> and you would think well, it that would be, on the test? But I've never you seen would. it on one either. I don't know where. I haven't either. Where, where would you, you know put where it? I think it falls? I think it falls in simple problem solving with. You know, if one thing doesn't work, then I move on to the next thing, then I move on to the next thing, then I move on to the next thing. I think it I think it falls in there. I mean, how would you put it if you were thinking about it? How would you categorize that? I'm going to have to look that up. That's a fascinating question. Don't you think? I guess that makes sense. I'm trying to think about an age range. What do I think is typical? I think typically developing babies do it pretty darn early. I'm going to say like 12 to 15 months. Yeah, me too. It's where we see that simple problem-solving piece come in. And, you know, I have I have really studied all of those early cognitive milestones, cause and effect, object permanence, and simple problem-solving, because those are the three things that really have to happen bef- just before a kid starts to use the words. So that, to me, means you have to put all that together. A kid has to master that kind of stuff. And that because that happens typical development, they get it, and then words start to come in. So I would put it way back there at that point. Um, and really, the kids who aren't able to make a choice like that, who aren't, who don't really get that whole oh, I get to pick one or the other, they really are developmentally pretty far back there at that mm-hmm. less than eighteen month range for sure. Right. But I'm going to make myself a note to do some investigating with that um, because I do think it. I think it's important learning how to make a choice. Now, this is different from our kind of. Well, it's loosely different, or I mean, it's loosely related. It's a little different 
from our kids who, you know, you're asking, they're almost like a lake and that they've learned how to imitate. You, know, so you say, you want cookies or crackers? And they say, cookies or crackers? You know, they're just, I think, so anxious to get one or the other. <laughs> and for those kids, they probably do want both. Mm-hmm. But, again, I think that's a little different than the kids that we're, ho- we're doing the whole visual piece and they still don't get that we want to make a choice. So I think that we have to really make that pretty pronounced and pretty evident so that they start to get, you know, we're just going to do one of these. Um, I have had a kid or two when I've asked a question like that before, though, and they'll scream something like, both, and I'll think, oh, somebody's talking about that word. That's great. Good. Good answer. (laughs) And then you want to give them both when it happens, but that's normally not what you're going to hear. All right, so for those choices, again, we want to use that forced choice method even when we're asking them some of those early questions related to, um, you know, what happened, like, Again, these would be questions that you would be trying to pull out of your two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old with with things that you don't really know. And, again, this can be kind of hard if you have no idea what the answer should be. And so that's why I think you should really stick to things that you have a pretty good idea of what happened so that you can give them the whole forced choice thing and have a um, have something have choices that really make sense to them that they really can't remember. So if your child goes to preschool and you get a little note about what they did that day, or you know a weekly summary, look at that and use those things to talk about and to ask about, or ask the teacher. You know, say we're really working on questions and. Him being able to participate in conversation with me with this kind of stuff. So let me just ask you a couple little things so that I can talk to him about that today and so that you have an idea of what those questions might be or those answers might be. Now, this leads me to another thing. Boy, we've had a lot of caveats today, a lot of kind of outliers here. Some people will say, and these are especially folks who work with children who are on the spectrum, they will say, uh, or people who do the real child-led uh, methodologies, they will say, don't ask a question that's not real, meaning that we shouldn't ask a question that we already know the answer to, like what color is this or that sort of thing. And I And we were, again, kind of joking about this before the show, and to tell a parent not to ask those kinds of questions is... <laughs> really to be counter-reactive uh, to the way that we've parented children for hundreds or thousands or how many ever years you believe humans have existed, where we're asking our kids, you know, what's that or what color is it? Or, you know, parents, we routinely ask things that we already know the answer to. So, again, when you're doing reading about this as a therapist, you might stumble upon a person who says that's not the right method, it's not what you would want to do, and again, I think that those people are recommending that because they're really trying to dissuade you from bombarding a kid with questions long before he's able to really answer them, and so I understand that, but again, if you have a child who's developmentally ready, you have to work on answering these kinds of things or some kids won't get there, 
I mean, you have to really build the skill and target it or, again, might not see that come on in um, unless you really work on it and make it a goal. I feel like I'm kind of all over the place talking about that, but that sort of makes sense to you, right, Kate? <laughs> Lisa, yes. <laughs> all right, well... Okay, let me try and rephrase that. Thank you. For some kids, speech is automatic and you would never consider targeting these things, but obviously those aren't the kids we're talking about. We're talking about kids with language delays, maybe disorders, and for a lot of those kids it just isn't automatic. And I suppose if you waited long enough, it might (laughs) finally happen. But Like when they're four. Right, and we're already talking about really um, lowering your expectations to meet a child where he is developmentally. So we're already talking, you know, the things we're suggesting you do with a three- or four-year-old are things that some two-year-olds do easily. So, you know, we're not saying shoot for the moon. We're saying shoot for what's appropriate for your child, but for some kids it doesn't ha- happen automatically any more than talking happened automatically or, you know, exactly. it just isn't. And they need help, and we're saying if you want to help, make sure you're on the right page, and by that I mean make sure you're targeting something that's developmentally appropriate for your child. You'll have a much easier time if you do exactly. that. And okay. Exactly. That was the way to tie it all together. So back to our first choice question. So if you were talking to your child about what he did with daddy when you weren't there, when you got to get away and go to Target by yourself, you know, the best part of the week, and so you want to come back home and you would ask, you know, what did you play? What did you and daddy play? And so, again, instead of just saying that, you would have, known by the mess on the floor what they played or by asking dad so that you can say, you know, did you play trucks or did you play ball? And, again, you're giving him the choice to be able to think about what he said, but you're providing that verbal model so that he can still have something other than just a random, open-ended question. And so many times we do go there. And, Kate, when you were talking about that before, you were saying it's it's pretty abstract. It's not in context for that kid. And, again, that's why I think other people might say, don't work on those questions because it has no direct meaning to what the child is doing at the at the you know, in the present. And I agree with that unless the child is, further along developmentally, and we've already, again, talked about what that would look like, and you may have to use some of these strategies to get that ability going before a child would even start to be able um, to participate in conversation that way. So using the forced choice method is a great strategy. If you have a child who's mixed up with yes or no, you can also use it that way. And I think we talked about this a little bit last week, so that if you were saying, you know, do you want ice cream, yes or no, or do you want ice cream, no or yes, then you're really, again, providing that model for what the child's response should be, and he's not just having to pull it out of thin air. I've used that whole yes-no prompt, and I don't know that we talked about this 
specifically last week, but a lot of our friends on the spectrum will have a hard time with yes and no. If you're asking a yes-no question without giving them uh, a, a cue, with I want you to respond to this with either a yes or a no, and again, you're not going to say that. You'll just say, you know, do you want to go play baseball, yes or no? And they can give you the prompt there. I'm thinking about one of my little friends in particular who is now probably in, oh, fourth grade, that when I worked with him when he was two, that was liberating for him because all of a sudden he would get a look on his face like, I know how to answer you now, <laughs> you know, because you're giving him the whole yes, no. And his his mom is so funny. He was a kid that I saw in my playgroup program, and so she came back in and she said, that has been life-changing for us. It's like a light bulb went off. He would know what to say if I would just put that yes or no at the end of the question for him. And so, again, sometimes it's just a strategy as simple as that that can um, mean the difference in a child not responding or not being close to learning how to respond is giving them that that option there. The other strategy that I want to talk about is called the review method, and I've done this a lot. And, again, you're teaching a child how to respond. And so you're going to work on these kinds of responses, again, you know, hence the word review, so that you might even say to them things like, you know, what are you eating for dinner? You have chicken, peas, and macaroni. And so, again, you're going to ask them, and you're giving those visual choices. You're pointing chicken, peas, macaroni. So you're helping them kind of learn how to respond when it's in context and when it is present and when it does make sense long before you would really expect them to be able to tell you um, when it's out of context or when it's happened, you know, when you're questioning them after the fact. So if you have a kid that you've played outside with and you're going in and you can say, you know, tell Daddy what we did today and you're, you know, reviewing with him, remember we went on the swing and then we went on the slide. And so, you know, again, the kid, you want him to yell out, swing, slide. And so you're doing that whole review piece to cue them and to get them accustomed to responding to that and when kids are working on this and again I don't work on this with every single kid that I would see because a lot of our kids don't get there before they're three or before they're four or whatever and so again this is not a a strategy you're going to use with every single kid on your caseload if you're an early intervention um, SLP or DI or DT these would be, you know, again, for your higher-level kids who are developmentally ready to do that. But you might say to them, let's talk about what we played today in therapy. We played babies, played bubbles, played Play-Doh. And so then you'll say, tell Mommy what we played today. And you're doing that whole review method as you're talking about it. And for some kids, you can put this kind of preemptive question answering and responding build that into your therapy sessions and then it's going to be easier for mom to see how to use the strategy and then hopefully generalize so that a child will be able to do that without the whole review piece does that make sense i think it makes sense (laughs) makes sense to me (laughs) and so again a lot of times it just really depends on how we ask these questions and I think knowing the answers ahead of time is is critical. And we've already talked about why some people might not think that's a good idea. But I do think it's important for our language-delayed toddlers that we 
know if they're answering appropriately. Have you ever had a kid that you're asking him some questions and you're sitting there and you think you're having just this great conversation and mom, you look over at mom and she's shaking her head no, or she's she's acting like, what is he talking about? That didn't happen. And I'll think, gosh, that's just where I've kind of led a kid down a path and he's just thinking, okay, if you say so, lady. Yeah, I've had it happen. I can't understand them or they don't respond, and I'll say, you know, I've had a number of conversations this week about what kids were for Halloween, you know, and I'll say, oh, were you a whatever? Mm, Yeah, and I'm talking about it, and the mom's like, he wasn't that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and that's where you know, okay, that little comprehension piece is missing. He did Mm -hmm. not get that. Or I'll think, oh, he's just so accustomed to kind of going along with whatever the adult said that, you know, that's his kind of script for a conversation. And with those kids, you almost have to introduce, you know, like we were talking about last week, that non-preferred choice or as they get older, kind of a ridiculous choice. So they'll start to understand that they can respond no and um you know, be able to give that response. And we talked we talked last week about the whole non preferred item, right? Did we talk about that last week or the week before? You know what? Can you give I'm a choice? not really sure we did because I was about to bring that up when you were alluding to the no yes as opposed to yes yeah. no. Yeah. Um. So I don't. I'm not so sure we did. Okay. When you're teaching yes no or even a choice like this, when you're teaching giving choices, and see, I've been talking about this so much in conferences. I can't remember what I talked about on the podcast or what I didn't. And I talked to a couple different parents about this last week. So, again, forgive me for not remembering if we talked about it on the podcast or not. But I've had about, oh, a thousand conversations between last podcast. And they all are kind of related, aren't they? (laughs) Kind of, yeah. When you're give when you're teaching a child to respond to choices, and again, this could be verbal choices. It could be with pictures if you're using the uh, picture exchange communication system. It could even be with if you're using an alternative augmentative communication device, an AAC, like a Big Mac switch or something like that. When you're introducing the concept of making a choice, you want to be sure that a child is really choosing what he or she wants. And you can't really be sure of that unless you introduce or include something that you know he or she doesn't want. And so PECS or the Picture Exchange Communication System, when I learned PECS, it was the very first time that I ever thought about offering a non-preferred choice, a.k.a. something the kid hates or doesn't want so that he or she has a reason to choose. And so, again, the PECS method with pictures, it would be that you would have a picture of, you know, candy versus a picture of a sock or a stick or a, I use a glove all the time. And so, again, you're you're giving the child the choice between something that he or she, you know that he or she would pick and something that they are not likely to want or pick so that you know that they get that whole concept of choice making. And so you could do the same thing if you're talking about 
verbal choices or verbal things. And I do this all the time if I'm if I'm trying to get a child to understand his name or respond to his name. I might say, is your name Tyler or Daddy? And he knows his name is not Daddy, hopefully, by the time you're working on this. And so, again, you're giving him almost a ridiculous choice, and that goes back to that whole non-preferred or non, uh, what would I say, logical choice there so that you really know that they understand that concept. And if you're talking about it, again, at that early level, that would be a good strategy when we were talking about a second ago take for a kid who didn't understand choices at all. You might do that whole non-preferred thing so that if he picked, um, and let me ask you this. This is another kind of, kind of, Interesting thing that happens sometimes, I re- and I remember this when I first learned this strategy, you know, a long time ago. We'd just pick up a stick or something on, or a rock on the way into a kid's house thinking I was going to use that as the preferred, the non-preferred item, and darn if he or she didn't want to play with that. Mm-hmm. But that happens sometimes too. <laughs> I had a kid I was doing pecs with who I usually use a sock for the non-preferred item. And when I first uh-huh. introduced it, the mom said, oh, I don't know, he really likes socks. Well, then <laughs> I had it, so I went with it. And he did darn choose the sock, and I went, ew, sock! And I threw it across the room. Well, every time after that, he said, <laughs> ew, sock! <laughs> he did, though, finally. It took a while for him. He did learn to discriminate pretty well, but it took yeah. quite a while of really focused practice to get him to realize if I choose the sock picture, I get the sock. And after a while, I he have finally to play. Yeah. yeah, he wanted to I know. as always. Yeah. And those kinds of kids, you really do have to set it up, something they love and something they hate. And it's a great way to teach yes, no. We talked about that a little bit last week with something right. they love and something they hate. But the whole non-preferred item, and again, if you had to use that method to get a child to understand choices, you may have to use that method again when you're teaching a child how to how to pick a response when you're doing verbal questions. Hopefully, he or she's moved on a little bit so that it's not completely necessary to make the choice that different or that ridiculous. And sometimes when you do this, it'll backfire, and the kid will then start to pick all of the ridiculous choices but even that's good because it lets you know that he or she's developing uh, that sense of humor. You know, and I've had some kids before I'll say, you know, is your name, um, you know, Allie or Mommy? And every single time they'll start to say Mommy and think it's hysterical, mm-hmm. you know, because they get the whole joke part. Um, I made a mistake one time with a little guy who was uh, the son of a friend of mine. That I was, she's a physical therapist, and I was seeing him as a speech pathologist, and I would, I would say, do you want something or poop? And then he started, you know, that set the stage mm-hmm. for all the poopy humor, and his mom was like, thanks, Laura, I really appreciate that. <laughs> but, you know, who knew he would be so far along cognitively to kind of start to think that was funny? It, but, again, that's an important milestone when a kid can start to recognize humor. At the same time, though, you want to you want to be sure with with when you're given those kinds of choices that the kids understand it, and that it makes sense for him to you know that he's processing what he's saying. But I'll do that a lot when I'm trying to teach a kid his name, or I'll ask him, 
you know, take one of his siblings' names. You know, is your name Jack or Ben? And that is a, a way that you can usually get them to respond to what their name is, too. Teaching a child to respond to what's your name and how old are you, every parent works on that. And, again, that's just repetition, repetition, repetition. Some kids you might have to sing a little song or come up with something funny so that you're building that into their routine to know, um, you know, what their name is. You know, your name is Jackson, your name is Jackson, your name is Jackson, you know, that sort of thing where you make it a little chant, you make it fun, you make it novel. But, again, I think the only way to really do that or that I've had good luck with my little clients is just to practice make that part of uh, the routine that they would do so that it's kind of so familiar that they understand that. And I think it's important to, to help a kid learn what's your name and how old are you because what is every adult going to ask him in the grocery store or at church right. or at a birthday party? You know, that's just that's just part of it. And so not to work on that, I think, kind of leaves the kid even at more of a disadvantage. But you've got to wait till they're ready. Do you work on name and how old are you, Kate, or do you leave that to parents? I do name a lot more than age. I can't say. I certainly did age with my own children. Uh-huh. Uh if they're approaching three, I usually do then I'll start talking about three. Yeah. But two I don't usually do. Most of our kids I see at two are really not not meaningful to them at all. It's just so abstract. Right. Like, eh. But as they get yeah. closer to three a lot of times I do. That's when I work on it too. And again, if I had a, a kid who's turning three but who's still eighteen months of I wouldn't even work on it with that kid because, one, they're not talking well enough to do it. And so looking at where they are developmentally, meeting them there, you know, again, that's going to be <laughs> the prerequisite for everything we talk about on this show. You Typically developing children respond to how old are you and what's your name. In that 30 to 36-month time period, I think on some tests it's listed as 30 to 33 months, and then on other tests it's 33 to 36 months. We know, again, from our knowledge of tests, that that means that 90% of all children can do it by then. So we back it on up and think, okay, an average two-and-a-half-year-old would be able to do that. So, again, unless the kid you're working with is cognitively at that two-and-a-half, you know, moving toward three developmental level, you wouldn't think that's an appropriate goal, which, again, is why we wouldn't get there with lots of the kids that we're working with because they're they're just not ready for that. They're not developmentally at that age range. And, again, like I've said already, if you wait until they're ready, it's going to be a lot easier than... um, pushing it on them too soon, but for some of our kids, you have to work on every single milestone or it's not going to come in with language because it's just not developing typically and they're just not acquiring those those next little steps without a big jump start from their mom or their therapist or probably both. All right, so that brings us to the end of today's show. The strategies that I talked about are... Um, from an article on my website at teachmetotalk.com, and I have linked that to teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page today so that you can get a 
uh, visual reminder or review of the strategies that we talked about. And if you want more help learning how to teach these kinds of skills, let me recommend Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, because those skills, along with every other language milestone that you would ever want to teach to a child, are outlined in that book. And so if you're a therapist really struggling with, how do I do this? I need some more specific directions. I'm, I'm kind of lost here. And um, get that tool, and that's one tool that I get at least a couple of emails about every week from therapists who have bought it and have said, you know, I'm new to early intervention, or I've just started this new job where I'm working in preschool, but all of my children are lower functioning, and I didn't know what to do. And thank you for writing that therapy manual because it really has helped me get focused and get some new ideas for how to work on things. So if you need a more specific uh, plan, let me mention that that book. It's Teach Me to Talk, the Therapy Manual. All right, any last words from you today, Kate? No, I think I'm good. <laughs> All righty then. Well, next week we are going to talk about that next little step, which is understanding objects and how to teach a child to understand negation or not versus something else because the reason that you would work on those things or those two therapy goals along with, say, maybe categories or something like that, those kinds of goals have to come in before a child would really understand why questions and, you know, why, why, why. But in typical development, parents, hate that question and you know that's kind of the hallmark to me of a child who's turning three a kid who mm -hmm. starts to ask and again this would be a kid who's moving a lot of the language you know why mommy why 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 and that evolution of that question does not happen until a child starts to understand things like how objects work and what they're used for and kind of consequences and those natural um, progression of cause and effect, and so next week we'll talk about that. And again, that's something that a lot of us as early intervention therapists don't ever get to with kids. We we see children until they're three, and so most of the children on our caseloads, if we still have them on our caseloads at three, are not working on that. But our speech pathology friends who work with that next little population of, of preschoolers, this is something that they uh, would want to have some good tricks for. So we're going to talk about it. And I do think it's something that parents need to be paying attention to and know how to target at home. So that's what we're going to work, talk about next week and work towards. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye.